You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. It was a few years ago. I, I don't remember the exact date, but I was invited by a guy named Pete Davis to come to Harvard and give a talk. And I do a lot of talks at different places. I'd never done one at Harvard. And I thought, well, this will be very nice. And when I got there, he gave what was like one of the greatest introductions I've ever been given in terms of like, here, here's Chuck Marone. And, and I remember who the heck is this guy? A little while later, I got a video of a speech he gave at his Harvard commencement. And I watched the speech and I was just stunned. I'm like, this guy is a great speaker. He's speaking to my heart. This is a wonderful speech. Guess what? It's now a book, a book called Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. Pete Davis is our guest today to talk about this book. He's a civic advocate from Falls Church, Virginia. He works on projects aimed at deepening American solidarity and democracy. He's the co-founder of the Democracy Policy Network, and he is married to a Minnesotan. So he's got so much going for him. <laughs> Pete, uh, welcome to the Strong Downs Podcast. Chuck, it is such an honor to be here. I am a longtime listener, so first-time guest. So <laughs> glad to be on. I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here. When we did meet uh, for the first time there at, at Harvard a few years back, I meet a ton of people and and I'm struck by very few. And you are one who I'm like, I like this guy a lot. So we had a good time. I was so glad to bring you because, you know, it's it was Harvard Law School. So it's a lot of lawyers getting talks usually about, you know, you know, the intricacies of constitutional law on some topic. And I treated it as my job at school to keep everyone well-rounded. So I made sure to bring in people from all across the spectrum of disciplines. And I was so excited, like, let's bring an urban designer uh, to talk to the lawyers to remind them there's more to life than uh, just what's going on in the courts. Well, we shook things up a little bit and we packed yes. that room and there, there was some <laughs> good questions. So it was a lot of fun. Let me start with the commencement speech. We're going to share that in the show notes. So people are going to want to go watch that too, because it was really good. It's, it's just eight minutes of your time. You're going to really enjoy it. You said that the defining characteristic of your generation, which is a, a generation behind mine or two, was this idea of infinite browsing. I want you to talk about this challenge and why this is a unique challenge to you and the people that you've grown up with and gone to school with and, and, and for this, this moment in time. Yeah, you know, I think a good way to kick off explaining why I care so much about this idea and why I believe it's it's true is to talk a little bit about like where people in my generation are finding themselves in the world. And I think this doesn't only apply to my generation, but I think the epicenter of it is in my generation, which is, you know, a lot of people feel like we're living in dark times. You know, the community is in decline. There's these major political problems. There's a feeling that all these institutions are corrupted. There's this sense of, oh, we tried a bunch of hopeful things like technology or electing particular people, and it didn't solve all the problems. And so our hopes are dashed and we're all kind of curdling into cynicism. And in this place, we find ourselves this kind of cynical declensionist time, we are turning towards guidance of what to do. You know, we're looking for, okay, what do we do? What's the answer? 
And the answer that we get in education, and I got it like a heavy dose of it when I was in college and especially in law school, and even we send it to high schoolers, is that you know, the number one thing you can do is keep your options open. <laughs> that was the creed of education. It was, we measure success by how many options you have of um, things you could be. We, if there's a super successful person, we say, oh my gosh, they could, they could have any job or be anywhere or marry anyone, you know, maximizing options. Um, and then, you know, a lot of uh, the other message kind of in personal cultural life is, uh, is usually internal focused. It's, it's, it's like wellness, like personal self-care, you know, the world is falling apart, but, you know, carve out some space for yourself. So in institutional life, we're getting keep your options open open and cultural life we're getting, you know, take care, turn internally for all the answers. And the thing that hit me was when I looked at all the people I respected and not just me as a weirdo, you know, all of my friends, you know, all people my age, when we were looking at who we actually respected, what were lives well lived, it was the people who totally ignored that advice. It was people who dedicated themselves to particular things. It was people who slammed hundreds of doors so they could walk through one and settle in. It was people who didn't keep their options open. And so um, people who were in the name of the book dedicated to something and not just dedicated to their own advancement. You know, some people ask me, oh, is this book about dedicating yourself to health regimen? And I go, no, it's about dedicating yourself to something outside of yourself that is particular. And that's another factor. It's not abstract, like I'm dedicated to this abstract idea. I am dedicated to a particular place or profession or cause or community or person um, or institution or craft. And those are the people that not only were helping make our times a little less darker, they were internally feeling more at peace, feeling more impactful, feeling more joy. And so that's what this book's about. How do we click out of infinite browsing mode and become dedicated like those people? I'm glad you broadened it out generationally because I, I'm 48. I wanted to say 47, but that just passed. I'm 48 now. I think you're 20 years younger than me, roughly. Yeah, I'm 31. Yeah, 31. Okay. Yeah. So, so we we have we have this slight generational difference. And and as I'm reading your book and as I'm going through it, I sense that it was written not by someone in my age group. This is Gen X, you know, check out, but very much in tune and in touch with what people of my age are going through. I know you've read Paradox of Choice, Barry Schwartz's yeah. book, as a big influence on you. I feel like even, you know, without the growing up with the internet and Netflix and constant browsing, this idea of keeping your options open and in a sense, not burrowing into something, there's a sense, I think, throughout all of human history, perhaps, but I certainly see it with people of my generation, that there's a, a time clock ticking away, right? Uh, the more we browse, or the more we don't dig in, or the more we kind of start and restart and restart and restart, you miss out because of this like relentless ticking of the clock, right? Yeah, you know, I think... The reason we browse is actually coming from a good place, which is that we're taking care of our future self. We think we're taking care of our future selves, which is actually what we try to teach kids. You know, that's like what the marshmallow test is about. It's like, right. take care of your future self. Don't just take care of your present self. You know, take a little for your present self, but do a little work during the week or do uh, resist impulsivity a bit so that your future self can be taken care of. And so I think the biggest infinite browsers are actually really have internalized that lesson and they 
think, oh, I don't want to close any doors for my future self. I want to give them maximum options. But the funny thing is, when you look back at your past self, you rarely say thank you for preserving all these options. What you say is thank you to my past self for all the burrowing in that you did, you know, right. because the thing we want, you know, because when we wake up with all these options, we just are like, oh, I guess I got to start now, you know, whereas when you wake up, you know, after 10 years into dedication on something, you have a community of people, you have a sense of purpose, you have mastery of a craft, you have, you know, status in an institution, you have work that's already been done on a cause. And what I'm trying to say to people with this book is that good that you're taking care of your future self, but actually do the exact opposite. You got it totally wrong, which is that because the clock is ticking, what we really want is nobody wants to start making community, but everyone wants old friends. Nobody wants to start playing guitar and be bad at it, but everyone wants to be like a master, you know, jammer, riffer or something. No one wants to, you know, in your case, Chuck, it's like no one wants to start the first blog post that no one reads, but everyone wants to be traveling the country as <laughs> like as a like yes. folk hero of like your cause. It's all because your past self did a gift to you, which is they said, I'm going to shut some doors for my future self, burrow into something so that they can have some of the purpose and community and depth and eventually impact and joy what that all adds up to that comes from long hauls. So my message is start the long haul now because the clock is ticking. You brought my experience up. And it's interesting because I, I did find a lot in this book where I'm like, wow, okay, I did that. Because I started in 2008, I just said, I'm going to write this blog three days a week. And I, re I remember one day we had 25 people total. This was like two years in, 25 people total who had read the site in a day. And that like shattered every record we had ever had. And it was like, oh my gosh, because I had an office mate then. I said, we, it was just me at the time. And I had this office mate and I'm like, look at this, 25 people read the site. <laughs> and I get people who come up to me now and they're like, how do I basically like, how do I do what you're doing? How do I on steroids kind of, you know, quickly get to where you're at? I don't want to be cynical to people and say like, well, you can't do what I did, but I never set out to do this, right? Like I set out to do something else and just get ideas and thoughts out and like really dig into this concept. Talk about getting started. Cause I think that's yeah. the, maybe the thing that people do. I, I didn't start out to do this is like 600 and some episodes of this podcast. I didn't set out to do hundreds of episodes of a podcast. I just wanted to explore ideas. How do you get started? How do you start? Yeah. You know, I'm laughing dedicated. to myself as you're saying this, because I interviewed 50, what I call long haul heroes, people who worked at something for a long time. I consider you not to blow smoke, but no, no, Chuck, I, I consider yeah. you a long haul hero. I am a long hauler. Um, yeah. Uh, and, um, and, um, <laughs> I was thinking I'd get all these divided opinions among the long haul heroes and have to like talk about the nuances in the book. But I got so many unanimous among the 50 that I interviewed of like unanimous type experiences that I felt like really confident writing about what what long haulers, what their practices are. And one thing that was common among all of them, and that's why I'm laughing to myself, is they all, you know, I thought I was going to interview them and they're going to be like, oh, you know, I had this blueprint. It was a 30 year plan, you know? And then I said, okay, you know, it's going to take a long time, but I'm going to do it. And like stage one, initiate stage two. initiate, <laughs> And all of them were all basically 
just do it. Let's get started and let's figure out the next step. You know, I interviewed Andy Shalal, who started this beloved restaurant, Busboys and Poets in Washington, D.C., that now has four restaurants. He's probably like the most known restaurateur in D.C. And I said, did you have your plan for like taking the restaurant scene in D.C. by storm? He said, I don't do 10-year plans. I do one step at a time plans. And he said, I had this vague idea that I wanted it to be a big space and a community space and a space of learning and a restaurant. And then I just put down the down payment and knew that I then had to do it because I was in debt. <laughs> and then I just started like one right. step at a time. Look, Google, how do you start a restaurant? You know, things like that. <laughs> I, um, you know, I interviewed Evan Wolfson, who did the 32-year-long campaign for legalizing gay marriage. And his started as, let me just write one article about this and start circulating it among the gay rights community. You know, and this is one thing about long haul cause work. A lot of those causes start with convincing the community of people that already mostly agree with you to even do the cause. And so he's like, oh, let me just write this and start circulating the idea a bit. You know, so many of it was I dive in. I do it in the smallest possible way I can do it. In Silicon Valley, they call that minimum viable product. Right. And I get into an iterative routine. So a lot of times it's like, okay, I'm going to write a blog post a week or I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to think up what's the next thing we could do. And then I'm going to do that. What's the next thing we can do? I'm going to do that. And so many people after diving in, the commitment took on its own momentum. I love just throwing stories. I got to throw two more Please examples. Do you it. Know? So many people were driven by just what was the next thing that was needed. So this person, Leslie Merriman in my town, she was a librarian. She volunteers for this group to help Afghan refugees in the in the area. And the group's kind of disorganized and they say, oh, here's a list of families that are like people we help. Why don't you just go through the list and call them and see what they need? And then she starts calling the families one at a time and she starts getting the needs. Oh, we need diapers. We need jackets. We need English as a second language classes. Our student has special needs. We don't know how to talk to the school about about it. Leslie doesn't have any of these skills or resources, but she's a librarian, so she knows how to look it up. And she starts just doing one helping piece at a time. And then she wakes up three years later and she goes, oh gosh, I now do an annual diaper drive. I do an annual jacket drive. I'm this totally dyed in the wool atheist, but I'm now partnered with this Lutheran church and we're close with all the Lutherans. Now I'm an honorary Lutheran because I got connected with them to help this group. And then every Christmas I have this big Afghan food at Christmas and all the families come and I'm like all my kids, all their friends are Afghani children. And I have no idea how this happened, right. <laughs> but I just was literally just like, what's the next thing I need to do? Uh -huh. And it was so many people like that. You know, my, after I wrote the book, the vice mayor of my town said, I'm only vice mayor because I volunteered to be like on the parent teacher board. And one thing led to another. And I found out that what needed to happen was I eventually needed to be vice mayor of the whole town. And I have no memory of how that happened either. And this is what everyone is. And the whole point of my book is it's actually, there's not a lot in there on, you know, how to get through year seven of the cause, especially because a lot of it was you're in the hallway now. And can I just throw 40 different angles at you to nudge you through one of the doors because the commitment itself will take on a life of its own. Yeah. I, th there's something a touch like Darwinian about it. I mean, you, you said minimum viable product. I, I keep thinking in my brain about like, there's this kind of modern sense that if you just get like the viral thing, you can be the Kardashians, you know, the next, the next big thing. And we see that happen a lot where you get your 
15 seconds of fame now is what it would be, not 15 minutes anymore. <laughs> yeah. You get this flash, but there's a certain amount. And the reason I use the word Darwinian is because I, I, I think about creatures that have been around a long time and adapted to their environment. And there is this certain amount of, you know, the next viable adaptation kind of approach to this. We have people contact us all the time who say, I want to do great stuff in my town to build a strong town. Give me like the five things I should do, or give me a checklist of things to do. Those people are never effective or rarely, rarely effective. It's the person who is burrowed in trying to solve the problem, who then finds us and says, all right, you're helping me solve this problem. Help me solve the next problem and the next problem. And they take our stuff and almost reinterpret it and reapply it in this unique way to their place. I'm just in awe of these people because they're doing the most astounding work that I see being done in city building today. And they're largely unrecognized. Amen. The real reason I wrote this book is, you know, I have a particular profession and craft I care about, which is politics and political causes. And, you know, this is applied to much broader things than just politics or political causes, but the real, like the literal original insight of why I thought I should give a speech on this and expand it into a book was it's a, that exact thing you said, which is so many people are looking for silver bullets, blueprints, you know, step-by-step -step things. And I've just been through the ringer for 10 years. You know, I got interested in politics when I was like 18 and I've saw for 10 years, you know, all the different silver bullets proposed, all the different, you know, engineering grand plans proposed, all the different uh, do these five things and it'll work proposed. And none of them stands up to one simple thing, which is if you are committed to something, you will figure it out. <laughs> you know? right, and, right. You know, and like trusting in humans that it's kind of a cynicism and an optimism. The cynicism is all of your blueprints will eventually crumble. The optimism is you as a person sticking with it and not quitting and really loving the thing you're working on, loving the cause, loving the people, loving the institution, that energy will find a way. It is the stem cell that will figure out what needs to be done. And all the people that got things done were people who just relent. They were like jazz improvists, you know, but they're not going to quit the, you know, the jazz quartet, you know, they're, right. they will find the next note and the next riff that will work for the next minute. I just think, you know, it pays so many dividends. If you can get one person committed to something over 10 years, that's way better than a training on a specific tactic, you know? And, um, right. and so that was why I was passionate about this. And I saw it in all the examples in history I looked at for this book. And I saw it in all the people I interviewed, you know, it was always that, that spirit. The people who actually inspired me to become obsessed with Long Haul Heroes was this couple in my town, Dave Eckert and Annette Mills. It's just so funny. It's like, he's like, I want to save this one plot of land from development. It has this beautiful creek through it. It has this history to it. Um, this is Dave Eckert. And he starts being like a classic uh, public suggester. He starts going like, save the land, save the land. You're awful, corporate stooges, things like this. And then they say, why don't you join the tree commission and the zoning board if you're going to be such a complainer? And then he calls their bluff on it and joins it. And then he learns the whole stuff and then of like how the systems work. And then he's like, oh, I need to make this historic case for the land. So I'm going to learn the whole history of the town. He becomes like one of the leading experts on the history of our town. Then he's like, I need 
need to make the ecological case. So he becomes a leading expert on the ecology of our town. He's like, oh, I got all this information on history and ecology. I should start some like annual events where I teach people about the history and ecology. He ends up making documentaries on the creek and on the history. And then people start saying, oh, the environmental movement's so lily white in Falls Church, Virginia. Why aren't you inclusive? And then he wants to call their bluff on that too. So he starts, the, he helps start the Black History um, Festival in Falls Church and starts unifying all the causes. It's a total improv game. And it's just because he loved that piece of land. And so one of my big messages of this book is we tell kids to change the world. No one ever changes it when you're like, I want to change the world. They change it when they love the world or more particularly a piece of the world. And then everything else will work itself out. I want to bring up my brother. I want to give you this story and I want you to react to it because you you wrote about people like my brother. My brother is one of the people who I admire the most. I'm the oldest of three and he's the middle one. And here's what I admire about him. He has worked the same job for, gosh, it's a couple decades now. He repairs photography equipment for a big printing company. So if you see like a light rail line wrapped in, uh, you know, advertisements, his company, the company he works for has likely printed that. The job is just, I mean, he shows up, he works 50, 60 hours a week. He's kind of fanatical about it. He cares really passionately about these printing machines. When he first started, they were outsourcing the maintenance and he came in and he's like, we can do a better job at this. And he got it all fine-tuned and work. He showed me around his work one day and he has all these checklists that he's put together to kind of help people maintain the equipment. And he takes so much pride in his work. And I look at him and there's a part of me that says, because I'm his brother, gosh, they don't appreciate him enough. Gosh, they don't treat him well enough. Gosh, you know, like I would like to see him uh, do something, you know, more in his life because he's so smart. He's so bright. He's so this, but he has just found something that not only I, I think you say he loves, I mean, it's his job, but he takes such like exquisite pride in it. It's hard for me not to just stand back and admire him because I know very few people who are as, in a sense, dedicated to, to something as he is to just making those machines work well. Talk a little bit about my brother and, and what that is, because we've talked about people who start big movements and, you know, save rivers and save, but there's something magical and fulfilling about Brent and the life that he's chosen to live, right? Amen. You know, I, I had two things to say on this. One, and I love that story. And I have to say, you know, my favorite part of writing this book is when people read it, people just tell me their stories of long haul heroes. And I only wrote this because I'm like a, a geek for long haul heroes. And so yeah. I just love hearing this. The first thing is I did a little bit of a taxonomy in the book of types of commitments. And so I talk about commitment to causes. That's the work of citizens, places, that's patriots, crafts, that's artisans. And my favorite to draw out, some of those are obvious, you know, we know about commitment right. to those things. You would my call favorite Brent was, a steward. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And so one of my favorite was steward. And that's commitment to the maintenance of things. There's so many fun quotes like Kurt Vonnegut had a quote of we have too many people inventing things, but not enough people maintaining them. If all the maintainers stopped, what would happen? And there's actually this wonderful organization. It's kind of an academic movement called the Maintainers. I know them well. Yes, Lee Vinsel at Virginia Tech uh, is still helming that. They were inspired to start their cause after Walter Isaacson started the wrote this book, The Innovator you know, the wizards who invented, you know, all these things. And they said, oh, we need to talk about the maintainers, the people who, after the iPhone is invented, write the technical writing to, you know, to, to fix it, run the maintenance shops, run the AT&T and Verizon cell phone towers that make sure your phone is not just a brick, run the electricity that you plug the magical iPhone in, you know, run the, you know, codes for housing to make sure that that electricity is safe, all the different things. And one of my goals with this message was to raise up stewards. And it seems like your brother is such a great example of it because, you know, probably the person who invented that photo technology, you know, probably made a, got it patented and made a lot of money or was written into the history books of something like that. And, but, and if he, you know, went on strike, we wouldn't have had it invented, but if the maintainers, you know, disappear, all of those machines won't work anymore. It's over. <laughs> so yeah. it's over, you know, um, all the bridges collapse, all the, um, and what I love about the maintainers is that they expand it beyond just physical maintenance to like social maintenance and like softer maintenance, like yards need to be mowed, you know, at, at, at the, at universities, people need to care for, you know, kids need to be brought up, you know, the next, the maintenance of the line of children, you know, being raised and stuff. And so that's one part. The other part is I just, Finally, from writing this book and going really deep on Wendell Berry, it finally like clicked with me and like burrowed deep into my soul and like exploded in my heart, like what Wendell Berry is trying to say. Like one of the big messages of what the great farmer philosopher Wendell Berry is trying to say is like everything on this earth needs particular care and needs experiential knowledge to keep it flourishing, you know, and he talks about it with farmers. Like he just writes at length and I never really got it till I really sat with it in preparation for this book. It's like a farmer who's been working a land or in his case, like three generations on the same land, they know that corner where the creek hits the rock and, or they know that the soil's slightly different on the East end than on the West end. And they know that like at this point in July, this is how, you know, the birds flow in this particular way. And that particular love is key to the maintenance of the world and the continuation of things. And then he starts expanding it. And I just think we need to just really shake our culture and remind people Every single machine that you're getting quickly at Target or something, I'll say Target instead of Walmart for the Minnesotan, (laughs) um, that you're getting seems like it's coming really quick. It seems like it's just coming in the box. But all of those systems, every single corner has a history, has um, a person who invented it, has a story of how it came to be. Me as a lawyer, it has a regulatory framework that that keeps it safe. You know, I'll I'll call out for my fellow lawyers. And then, um, and it has people like your brother that have the notes about, you know, this gear is really finicky and I know the instructions formally say it needs this WD-40, but you actually need to do double the amount or it's not gonna work because I remember the great mistake of 1997 when everything shut down. of my goals of this book is to celebrate the people who do that work. You talk about the idea of committing 
or dedicating yourself being a countercultural thing. Do you think that that is a counterculture today? Or do you think that would have been a counterculture a hundred years ago as well? Is this a, is this a human thing that we're dealing with or is this a modernity thing? What's, what's the overlap there between the two? Yeah, no, I, I struggle with this. And I actually had an original chapter that got cut that was trying to do like a deep intellectual history of this, you know, going back to, you know, Francis Bacon and like the discovery, you know, 1600s or something. Right. There's a nostalgic part of me that says like humans used to be better. And today we're just, you know, we're so uh, broken. But, you know, I don't think that's necessarily yeah. true, right? Yeah. And, you know, and you can find these letters from like the 1700s of, you know, when I was a boy and I turned 19 and I, I set out and, you know, and then I had to learn the hard way that, you know, it's important to be rooted like Ben Franklin letters or something. So this is definitely not a, this is something that's part of the life cycle. It's part of any place that's not fully kind of fascistic where you're allowed to like leave a place and come back, decide to come back or not, or, you know, choose your spouse, you know, choose your religion, things like this. It's all there. Choose your profession. Though I do think there are some, so instead of trying to like make a definitive statement on is it now or later, I just try to talk about some factors. Maybe that's the best I can do. My pay grade um, is um, one is, you know, there in recent times, some factors that are exacerbating this. There's first just the technology factor. You know, we can travel you know, it's been a progressive story of, you know, it used to be to go to another town was a day long affair, you know, a town 10 minutes away or something was not 10 minutes away back then. Uh, Fastest you could see is a galloping horse, fastest you could imagine, you know, and um, now we can travel anywhere very quickly, um, including not just halfway around the world, just seeing how another town lives and thus because you can travel your current village doesn't have as much control over you um and then there's the opposite the inverse of travel which is things can travel to us through information technology and you know i found when prepping this lost chapter you know original writing on when the first radio came to different places it's a total psychic revolution right you know some disembodied voice you know, 40 miles away is telling you about another way you can live, another music you can listen to. A movie comes and you've never seen another way of living and suddenly you can see it in moving pictures is totally a psychic break. Um, you know, when your old entertainment was going to town and like seeing the town band play like a John Philip Sousa march or something. Yeah. Um, so that's that. And that's just been exponential with the internet, you know, can be fed any possible ways of living every second of every day, any possible alternate cause you could work on or person you can be with or place you could be any of that. Um, so that's part of it. But I do think there are, I talk about in the book three different cultural aspects of the culture of open options that I believe commitment is a counterculture to, and I'll, I'll run through them quickly. Yeah, cool. So one is like in education, the one dearest to my heart that like made this was the impetus for the book originally was, I call it education for advancement versus education for attachment. So culture of open options education is education for advancement. The purpose of education is to help every individual get the tools they need to keep their options open for their private individual selves. Education for attachment is teachers seeing part of their goal as advancement. You know, we want to give people critical distance. We want to teach people to think for themselves, but 
also seeing part of education as instilling a certain reverence and duty in things larger than yourselves. And when you think about your favorite teachers, it's the ones not just that said, here's a bunch of things that will help you get a career. It's the ones that say, let me teach you about this profession. It's yeah. a community of competence of people who do this thing beautifully well, and they're serving a mission for a country. And think of how amazing that would be for you to be a part of it, or take a look at this craft. I'm going to teach you like the proper way to, you know, to play the piano or to, you know, uh, do, you know, use a saw or something like this. I think there's been a loss of education for uh, attachment and a gain in education for advancement. In morality, I call it indifference versus honor. Honor cultures are cultures that are actually cultures, you know, um, that actually have kind of a set of virtues that the whole community aspires to, and that admonishes you when you're stepping away from it and celebrates you when you're living up to it. And um, culture of indifference is a community where they say, we don't have a culture, don't worry. The best thing you can do is you don't bother me, I don't bother you, and we're never going to make claims about each other. And I sound like a real like reactionary traditionalist when I talk about this, but I actually think both sides of the spectrum are craving more morality. You know, when someone says, don't say that, that's racist. What they're saying is we have a virtue that we live up to as a community that I'm going to call you out on. And same goes on the other side when someone says like, don't cheat on your wife or whatever. Like there's, right. um, you know, um, that's us helping each other be together. And then finally in economics, is I call it money versus particular things, which is, do you organize all of the economy on the simple maximization of profit? Or do you have, as every civilization have had, some carve-outs for areas of life that you try to mediate the potential for money logic washing over the whole um, the whole system? And, you know, I might, for conservative listeners, they, oh, are you sounding like a Marxist here? But like, what I really mean is just like, do you want your mom to pay you to borrow your rake or lawnmower or something? When you say that would be inappropriate, what you're saying is I would like to preserve the sanctity of the institution of family from the logic of money and profit. And it's just the extension of that to more places. Like, let's not you know, make the pastor of our church go to the highest bidder. Let's not be able to buy votes. Let's not have the statues in the middle of our town be the people who could afford them. And how can we organize an economy and still take production seriously that preserves the beloved particular things that we all love, uh, whether it's our relationships with our family all the way to the beloved park or, you know, the beloved Main Street that it doesn't become, you know, Amazon Avenue or whatever. Right. Um, um, so, well, may, I, maybe seeing yeah. people as neighbors and not consumers, right? Yes. Amen. Yes. Yeah. I want to dig into, and you brought it up. I had it listed here as something I wanted to ask you about. You can take this wherever you want. I feel like the discussion of families is kind of one of these like ultimate commitment things, right? And it's, it is it is the thing that I feel like there is a conservative version of a family and there's a progressive version of a family. And in many ways, there's this beautiful overlap between the two but there's also kind of this exclusivity of them. And, and I feel like they're both getting a little bit right and a little bit wrong. Being dedicated to a family is a beautiful thing. My wife and I have been married almost 26 years now. We met in junior high. And, and wow. I, I can't imagine, uh, I, I look at people who are dating today 
And you think about like the fear of missing out or keeping your options open. You know, the idea that you can go on a website and have literally thousands of options of dating partners. I I found this beautiful woman who was a, you know, a girl when I was a little boy and we grew up together and and have all these memories. Here's the question I want to ask you. What do conservatives get right about families? What do they get wrong? What do progressives get right about families and, and, and what do they get wrong? And, and kind of, how could they learn in a dedicated kind of framework to maybe be more understanding of the other? Yeah, you know, I would say the what small C conservatives get right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good I, you way. Know, and um, not, you know, I, I have kind of my own private definitions of what those all mean, but I think I'll, I'll, say, I'll say the general small C definition of conservative. What I think they get right is that the ideal... You know, in some ways, this book is like a small C conservative book. And so I'm going to just state the thesis of my book is kind of the thesis of small C conservatism, which is that the ideal of human flourishing and freedom is not having maximum, you know, maximum choice to do whatever you want in the moment all the time. (laughs) And um, I think kind of conservatives, small C conservatives do most of the work in the culture of talking about the importance of the maintenance of institutions and the importance of subsuming ourselves and things larger than ourselves. Explicitly, I would argue there's a lot of people on the left that live like small C conservatives and whose cause work is like small C conservatives. They just don't explicitly like write the sermons every week on, you know, I know you want to do this, but like, we're all coming together as a community to learn about part of growing up is that you learn, you know, this, all the boring, you know, I talk about it as like the Friday night's lights lessons of the, you know, of the football coach or whatever, where I think that's a beautiful thing. And that, you know, institutions and, and institutions as small as the family, as big as, you know, a whole culture of morality that spans the globe or something, you know, mine is the Catholic church, you know, a very large institution. Those are not just tools of oppression. They're also tools of freedom by ordering, you know, ordering your life so that it's not complete chaos all the time, you know, and so that you're not alone in navigating the world, um, that it roots you to something so that you have some help in figuring out what meaning is in your life. What I think progressives get right is that, you know, all of this is nice. It's actually funny because it's kind of a conservative argument. All of this is nice in theory, but the practical reality of millions of people's lives is that the nice storybooks about how institutions interact with individuals are not always as hunky-dory when the rubber hits the road. Any kid who was born, you know, gay in some Kansas town where their oppression was so deep that it, you know, drew them to suicidal thoughts, you know, I don't think telling them the hunky-dory story about, you know, honor thy father and mother is going to work for them. And um, and that the most liberating things in their life was the moment where they were told, you can sever yourself from this institution and free yourself and choose for yourself something different. And I'm really, you know, as a, as a lefty myself, I'm really uh, careful in the book to talk about the commitments I'm talking about are voluntary commitments. And it's about the dedication you make after the liberation where you can think for yourself as an individual. And what I think conservatives don't appreciate about progressives is that a lot of those progressives end up voluntarily joining other forms of small C conservative families. You know, the the word that the queer community invented was chosen family. And I think that's a beautiful small C conservative thing to say, 
it wasn't working for me to be in that hierarchical structure that was telling me there was one way to be and not open to my imagination of alternative ways of living um, and what felt authentic and true to me. Um, but I don't want to live in the hallway. I don't want to live on the menu screen of life. I don't want to not be bound by anything. So I'm going to choose another thing. My kind of ideal of the synthesis is basically take the progressive lesson of everyone really does at some point have to find their German word for authenticity owned in this. You have to feel like you own, you're a part of the commitments that you make. There has to be a voluntary aspect to it. But I like the conservative idea that if we never voluntarily bind ourselves on a, you know, abstract level, that's, you know, not good for our souls on a really concrete level. No one's going to take care of you when you're old. <laughs> and, um, <It's> true. <laughs> and there's going to be a time where it's not going to be nice to be young anymore. And you're going to be really glad you uh, bound yourself in something larger than yourself when in the cosmic story on if you're able to give more than you need, then need more than you give. It's good to make that deal when you can give more than you need yeah. um, uh, now because everyone's head into the same destiny at the end of the road. <laughs> let me let me ask you about place. You live in Falls Church now, right? Yeah. Okay. I, I don't know how big Falls Church is. What's the population? 12,000 people, two square miles. Okay. We are 13,500. So we're like roughly the same size, yeah. little small town. Um, one of the things that I have had the most, I'll say this genuinely, difficulty understanding about millennials and, you know, to the extent that Gen Z now is is going out into the, the ether and, and paving their own way, uh, is not necessarily the desire to be in cities. Like, I respect that. I understand that. I I live in a city, but I live in a small town. But, you know, the idea that someone growing up here would want to move to Minneapolis, you move to the big city, there's more people to meet, more people to date, there's more job opportunities. There's, there's a whole litany of things. I've struggled to kind of reconcile that desire with some of the the lack of rootedness and and the things that I hear from people there, you know, like... I, I can't afford to live here. I don't have any free time because I'm always working jobs. I don't. And I've even been perplexed because you can buy a house two blocks from my house that is, you know, a 1600 square foot gorgeous place for $125,000 and you can work a, a nice job here and make a good living. And people don't do it. Uh, and when I ask them why, they say, well, I, I like I like living in the big city. To me, a lot of it feels like a, a lack of rootedness. It, it feels like keeping your options open and this kind of almost fear of commitment. Am I reading too much into this? Am I, because I, yeah, I look yeah. at my daughters and my daughters are both, you know, teenagers now. And they both say, as soon as we're done with school, we're out of here. We're never coming back. We hate this small <laughs> town. And I remember feeling that way myself. And I came back and I, I dedicated myself to this place and I, I, I love it here. And as frustrating as that can be at times, it's my love of this place that has has really kept me kept me going. How should I be seeing this? How should I be thinking about this? Yeah, you know, I, I'll start by pushing back, and then I'll end please. By agreeing. That's what I then want you to end do. by agreeing. So push back, and the, the first on the pushback, and this is something I was very careful with in thinking about these thoughts and writing this book on this is that. My vision, you know, part of this was I started my 
learning and commitment was coming up through the localist tradition. And it started actually with the like small town localist tradition, you know, uh, love of hometowns, everyone should move back to their hometown, all these schools are sucking people up and sending them to New York, you know, and um, everyone report back to your hometown. So I started with that, then I learned about, then I broadened my localism to say, oh, well, there's localism everywhere, the great kind of uh, Rosetta Stone to that was Dorothy Day, who I feel is as localist as Wendell Berry on his fourth generation farm, but hers was in the middle of New York City or Jane Adams in the middle of Chicago. You know, there is so much rootedness and localism in the neighborhoods of these big cities. So I don't think there's not a possibility for um, uh, for localism there. And the thing we forget about these cities, um, people like me at least forget about these cities, but one of my favorite, I was overhearing, uh, someone told me a story about talking about New York with their fellow Brooklyn, New York friends. And they said, oh, this is such a non-religious place. And someone said, oh, New York's one of the most religious cities in America. And what they meant is, oh, the white young people here are not religious, <laughs> you know, yes, when yes. there's there's neighborhoods in these big cities that are Absolutely. ethnic enclaves and like places that, you know, that are totally rooted and have had generations back living there. And you can see it in like the people who moved out that like Bernie Sanders, he like anytime someone brings up Brooklyn, the the grumpy guy, like his light shines up with total optimism and sincerity of um of like, oh, my time in Brooklyn, you know, and anyone, you know, um, and it's because of the old rootedness there. So then my localism expanded to be like some people are not called to be rooted to a place and they might be called to be I'm rooted to this cause or I'm rooted to this community or this profession and it flies me all around the world. And I feel all the spirit of commitment that comes from being rooted to a place, but it's just about something else. And so part of this goal was to expand the spirit of localism to more places, but to keep the general spirit of rootedness without thinning it out to being about nothing. So that's my pushback that one is you can have rootedness in big cities Two, Some of the people in the big cities might be rooted to something else. They might be rooted to a profession or a craft. And, and then the final caveat I'll say is some people are pushed to big cities by simply work either that their industry that they're in is only in those big cities. You can't, you know, or, just it's the place where jobs are. Though I think you probably have some pushback that there's a lot of jobs in these uh, <laughs> small towns as well. You know, if you did that. Yeah, I, I appreciate and, and I've I've gotten this similar pushback, and I, I I I recognize it and appreciate it, if not completely understand it. You know, people. I, I think the point you're making is that people's rootedness has multiple dimensions, and for me, like the trade-off of making less money and having different job opportunities has been worth it to be near family and be near, you know, other things. And for other people, there's a, there's a different set of frameworks and, and, and dedication. Is that a good summary? That is it. Yes. And that might be the case, but here's my part where I'm agreeing with you. I think yeah. for some people, if you're listening and that applies to you, be happy that applies to you and sit easy. But if that doesn't apply to you, I do think, I totally agree that I think this, this, city upset large city obsession is driven very seriously by they think new york is going to keep their options open you know they think if i move to a small town i'm closing a bunch of doors whereas i can move to new york now and in 10 years i can always move to that small town and they think that that door is always open but the reverse is not open mm -hmm. but my big message of this book this is my big message of the book is 
if you moved to that small town now, 10 years from now, you would have a deep rooted community there. Whereas if you move 10 years from now, you're going to feel the pain of like, okay, yeah, I'm glad there's, you know, this is a much more pleasant place to live than New York, but I guess I was right. I don't have friends here and I'm not connected. Well, yeah, you're not, you just moved here. And, um, And if you had made this decision back then, you would have all the things you wanted because you put in the commitment. And this is the big giant, if I ripped all of the pros off of this book and just tried to say it really simply what I'm trying to say in one like shaking people by the shoulders message, it's that we overestimate the content of the option we're choosing as determinative of what our happiness, joy, impact, purpose community will be. And we underestimate the commitment itself. New York gives you so much of options in terms of the content. You know, I can be this, I can be that, I can be here, I can be there, I can have this, I can have that. And so you think, okay, that's safe because the the content of the option will be there. But my pull point is, if you just are 60% there on something, choose it and the commitment itself will lead to rewiring your sense of meaning. So you have, you feel that this was the right thing to do. It will, open you up to this whole community of people so you will have a community and have friends. It will give you a mastery of something and give you depth in something so the whole world will open up as a kaleidoscope of meaning because of how your depth of knowledge about the place. And out of that will come joy. That's from the commitment, not from the substance of the thing. And you know, my caveat is it's not like you can pick at random and you'll be happy. Yeah, be a little choosy. But if you're 60% there, you're probably enough if you you dive in. We should, we should end there, but I, I have a couple other things I want to ask you. So let me, cause that was beautiful. And I, I think you summarized that really well. Is there a paradox in writing a book about dedication? I, I feel like today, what we are pushed often at strong towns is to write shorter blog posts and make, you know, shorter videos. No one reads books anymore. I sat down years ago and I, I read 50, 60 books a year. And I, I realized that at my age in life, I only had like 2000 books left that I was going to get to. And it caused me this consternation. Cause I'm like, I better pick 2000 damn good books. <laughs> Cause that's all I get. I, I don't have time for yeah. more than that. You are a reader. Talk to me a little bit about reading, writing and the dedication it takes to, to kind of delve into ideas. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I actually had a part in the original book. It got cut in the end about, developing a worldview and the commitment of that. And when people ask me, you know, aside from getting married and um, hopefully eventually having kids and things like that, and I'm committed to my hometown. I moved here. I'm going to be here in the long run on the housing commission right now. So reading strong towns, (laughs) (laughs) reading strong towns a lot and sending links a lot to people. (sighs) The, The thing in my 20s that I was really most proud of is I had developed a worldview, like I had developed a lens through it. The world is infinitely complex, so you need to create a lens to simplify it and bring it in. And you don't want to be so devoted to your lens that you can't see other things, but having a bit of a lens helps you make sense of the world. And by reading, I was able to, and reading a lot of the people that went into this book and are quoted in here and written in the influence section, a lot gave me a worldview and a lens that allowed me to see the random fire hose of 
reality and the news and new things talked about in culture with much more clarity than just one thing after another. So that was the big gift given to me by books. And my hope with this book was it could help. You know, I'm happy when other people find it as a nice one-off thing or it helped dislodge people. It helped you be grateful for the things you've done in your life or helped you make a decision. But the most self-interested part of like, oh, you know, I want to help the younger me was if some person can read this and it helps them get another layer to their worldview. Um, And that was my hope. The only other thing about writing it is my style is very curatorial, I've discovered, which is I just love collecting examples. Like I I just, I wanted to, basically it's just like, a the book is like a museum to the theme of commitment. It's not, you know, my platonic abstract, you know, idea that's solely mine, you know, laid out in a perfect argument. It's basically like I made a like empty Christmas tree structure and then I hung on it all my ADHD examples of, <laughs> oh, this is like the abolitionists and this is like Ken Burns movies and this is like something Simone Vi said and, you know, here's a thing that happened in the 1970s. Oh, here's a type of Ignatian discernment, you know, and hopefully what people can get out of the book, in, if part of it is internalizing the whole structure, but one of these hopes is that, you know, if you don't like the whole structure, maybe some of these examples are very interesting to you and it was a nice museum day. <laughs> I feel like joy for me would be uh, to have you as a neighbor where we could spend uh, many hours sitting on the porch and just chatting. Uh, <laughs> that uh, that would bring me great joy. I, I always love talking to you and I, I really appreciate you taking the time, not only to, to talk to us today, but to write this book. It, it is a fantastic book and I hope everybody listening goes and picks it up. Thanks, Pete. Same to you, Chuck. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on. If people want to get a hold of you, PeteDavis.org is your website. Is there is there another place where people should go? Yeah, PeteDavis.org. I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Pete D. Davis, and the book uh, is right there on PeteDavis.org, but you can also get it at DedicatedBook.org. Okay. Thanks, friend. <laughs> Thanks, Chuck. You take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.